Re is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, B.C., focused on being church with mission in mind. We acknowledge that we gather, live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. We are your hosts, Greg Elford and Jess Steffick, and this is the Re Podcast the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. Today, the Read Podcast continues on the theme of peacemaking. Living in a world that delivers all kinds of surprises, we're met with multiple scenarios where a proactive move towards peace could offset violent reactions to what life dishes out. Whether our own personal inner environment, the friction between us and others, or issues related to systems within our culture, peace isn't always found in peaceful ways. Today, Cam Taylor opens up themes related to grief, trauma, and pain to illustrate the tension between allowing violent attitudes to dictate our responses or choosing something better. Cam is a longtime member of the New Heights community. He's a coach, a friend, and a model of someone who invites others to learn from his experiences. Well, hey, Cam, thank you for being with us today. Uh, thanks for your willingness to, I think, be a bit vulnerable in today's discussion and also yeah, just for being willing to share some of your, your life with us on the topic of peacemaking. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. So, Cam, uh, tell us how you introduce yourself these days. What's kind of important to you to mention? I like to say that I'm a dad and a friend, definitely an entrepreneur with two businesses I'm currently running. I've been a pastor. I am a coach. I'm an author and a speaker. And I also say that I was married for 36 years until my wife passed away just a year ago now. So that makes me, I like to use the word single, not widower. Mm. So Cam, just in the way that you're talking about um, yourself now and the way you're introducing yourself, it sounds like there's been a change or a shift in the way that you, um, I guess, see yourself and introduce yourself even in this last year. So kind of having gone through some loss, it sounds like, and changes in life, is introducing yourself difficult now, or what is it like to have this kind of changed introduction? It's easier now than it certainly was in the beginning. So as soon as, right after Vicky died, I really went through an identity crisis for a few months. Who am I? I'm not married. I'm not really single. Who am I? So, but I've gotten used to it. I've gotten used to the idea of stepping into who I am and that I am a single person. I'm okay with that. So, yes, it's changed. It's still kind of awkward, and I have kind of a funny laugh once in a while. I'm thinking, what's that all about? But, but I'm, I'm getting used to it. I definitely am accepting my new normal, and that includes my introduction. Yeah, and like knowing you a bit, um, I know that uh, this last year obviously has been a really difficult one, but you've, unfortunately, it's not the only year that's been a difficult one. For people listening, what would you say if you were to look back on, on trauma or things that maybe have inspired attitudes that rightfully so have, have uh, felt violent? 
I'd love just so we can get into the topic with you for a bit of a backstory on different examples of, of what you bring to that, um, to that topic. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Well, I would say it's actually 10 years ago this week, April 23rd, 10 years ago, we had a ma- major motorcycle accident. And that what I would call that a capital T trauma event, similar, but very different to my wife's death. So that really introduced me to this whole idea of, oh my goodness, life can change quite drastically in an instant. I almost died in that accident, but fortunately, between God deciding it was not my time and some very good medical care, I did recover three years, took three years to recover, but learned a lot, and there's a whole story there which I won't get into. (laughs) Okay, so we've got uh, a motorcycle accident that landed you in a hospital bed for, well, hospital bed and intensive rehabilitation for three years. And now, uh, more recently, um, losing your wife, who you were married to for so long, and who walked through that whole trauma alongside you, um, we certainly recognize that um, in the conversation, there's probably some feelings that have come up over the last ten uh, years that would help us get into the into the posture of understanding how we respond when life doesn't pan out the way we hoped it would. Um, so I'm curious if you could maybe start us off by just talking about some of the knee-jerk reactions that you have even these days when you think back on what you lost in that uh, motorcycle accident, or if you want to talk about Vicky's passing. No, sure. I, I would start with the motorcycle accident. I think initially I was fairly peaceful because of my optimism and well-surrounded, well-supported But it wasn't until about three months in that I really started to react to what was happening to me. It's partly because I just believed things were going to get back to normal. But then I ran into a brick wall of infection and complications, more surgeries. And that really rocked me and felt like this is not fair. I realized I was out of control. Well, I learned that when I'm lying in ICU, I'm out of control. But I didn't really react, I would say, extremely negative until a little bit later on. And then it was quite a journey just to try to reframe it and think, okay, God is going to be with me in this. But it certainly, I did a lot of soul searching, a lot of struggling with the negativity of it and how much it affected my life and how many losses I experienced in that accident. Yeah. Can you help us understand some of the ones that we might not know, just being someone that's never gone through that? Like, what are some of the losses that people don't like they don't think of immediately well where do i start so for starters you can't feed yourself you can't dress yourself you can't even get out of bed on your own like i couldn't i didn't actually drive so a loss of driving for 717 days who's counting anyways but you know (laughs) so that was hard sitting in that passenger seat with my mouth shut letting vicky drive was that was a loss (laughs) mr control freak right but I, had, I couldn't work, so I lost my ability to work. I was uh, training for a marathon, so I lost the ability to run. I fought that one for quite a while until I had to eventually give that up. And just the loss of who I was, I had work about to start in the States. That was very promising. So my identity wrapped up in work and fitness and all these things was just shattered really in a million pieces. And I, I love the way that you described um, kind of that daily 
choice or maybe daily process that some days some of the feelings that came out you were able to manage um, in different ways some days negatively or maybe in the way that we're talking about it I wonder um, did you feel attitudes kind of drawing you toward a violent response to your pain and loss or is that a fair way to talk about pain to use the use the term or the framework of violence I would say it's not so much the word that I use but I, let me tell you a story about this last year, which I think was a lot more, there was a lot more potential for violence or at least stronger feelings. And it was really when Vicky was diagnosed with cancer. And I know that for a lot of people, just hearing that C word kind of raises people's hair on the back of your neck and gets people very fired up. And that is completely what happened to me. I'm, I remember sitting in the parking lot we just got this diagnosis, and it was a stage four cancer. It was a terminal. I mean, she was going to die. We just didn't know when. And I, was, I looked across the parking lot, and I saw a little bumper sticker, and it was F-U and then the ribbon, the cancer ribbon. And I thought, that's perfect. I'm going to grab a hold of that, take a picture of it. But then I'm reading James chapter 1 at the very same moment that says, treat your intruder as a friend, not as an enemy. And... That could have gone two ways, right? You could have gone, I hate you, cancer, right? And I needed to process my feelings about that illness, but I chose this other response. And I know it's very difficult for a lot of people that I run into. That's not always, that's not an easy response to make, and I totally get that. And so that was, that's an example of violence, I think. We can turn violent towards these intruders, these accidents, these illnesses, and they can really mess us up. So I'm interested to know then, what did it actually look like for you to welcome in this thing that you didn't ask for, you didn't do anything to deserve or bring upon yourself uh, or Vicky? Like, how do you welcome something like that? Well, there's both with the motorcycle accident and I would say with the cancer, part of the welcoming was finding a purpose in it, kind of reframing it. I remember sitting in my recliner three months after my motorcycle accident, after my fourth surgery, and I was going to be out of it for several months recovering, is asking God, give me a purpose. I can't imagine how I'm going to survive in this recliner for the next whatever long. And he spoke to me very clearly about, I'm going to give you something to do while you're actually immobilized. And similar, a little different way, but when Vicky got sick, I, I just realized that, well, for starters, I had to do my own processing for sure, but I found that I need to turn this into some kind of purposeful process where I can maybe help others, be an encouragement, definitely serve Vicky and be fully present with her with love and not resentment and not with violence towards the cancer and all bitter. So that kind of was my purpose. Just like a purpose was a little different back in, in uh, 2010, 2011 rather. So that, that's kind of how, what, how we think about that, that question. Is there like any tension there? Like, would you say it's never helpful to, to let a violent or kind of aggressive reaction come from experiencing trauma or loss? Are you saying that's never helpful? Or do you think there's maybe some bit of uh, some usefulness in letting a more kind of intense outrage 
come from us? Can it, can it be cathartic or do you think it's not helpful? I'm a big believer in you have to have a way to express that, those feelings, that emotion. There's a quote that I I've written down. I've said it many times and it, it makes so much sense. When I read this quote, this was true 10 years ago. It's been true this last year and I've seen it for other people. And the quote goes like this, trauma is not what happens to us, but what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. So what that says to me is that it's, it's holding it in that causes the problem. So you, I found I had to find ways. I mean, I, I'm a big journaler, but I also had people, safe people. You can't, don't just blab it to anybody. You need to find the empathetic witnesses that will just allow you to tell your story over and over again. And that has such a powerful impact. And when it's very raw, that story is going to be a little raw. So you need the people that can kind of handle that and kind of just allow you to be a little bit off, a little bit angry, a little bit upset. And, and I know for sure God can handle anything. So that's where I would really let it out in my journal. I mean, I don't let people read my journals. Do you not swear a in your journal? <clears throat> I've been known to swear in my journals, and I'm not one to swear. <laughs> so, so yes, definitely, and I believe it's a biblical concept, this compl- the need to complain. There is legitimate complaint, absolutely. But don't let it go on too long, because then it becomes whining, and that's not helpful for anybody. How do you, how do you um, know when the season of complaint has just turned into the season of whining? Like, what do you think is a marker where um, venting or where processing deep pain has run its course mm. and now there's uh, a shift that's, that has to happen? That is a good question, one that I've never answered before probably <laughs> or thought about mm. much. We need people in our lives that know us and know what love should look like or know what kind of that open, openness looks like. So I think having friends that can see through the crap that we're trying to pull off is so important because we don't always see it ourselves. That's one, I think, important aspect to that. Yeah, I, as you were describing, uh, responding to Jess's question there, it, it, and I'm looking for ways to connect this to peacemaking, you almost hear a sense of this proactive peacemaking that's happening within yourself of identifying things that have gone sideways in life, not minimizing them, not ignoring them, but not letting them become what what um, ident- what you're identified by or what defines you. Um, and and I really appreciate that. Do you do you feel like there's a rhythm of dipping back into lessons that you feel your past? that they come back, that they rear their ugly head, and then it's like the frequency with which they happen becomes less, or the intensity. Like I'd love to know a bit about your experience in that process. Yeah, that, that's another great way to frame it. I would say, let me tell you a tool that I've used that I found has really helped me this last year, and it's called the grief cleanse. So unlike drinking juice, <laughs> It's, it's a cleanse, it's a process, a journaling process and a reflective process that has really helped me cleanse and emit all this grief and a lot of the negativity that I felt. And it's simply a seven-step process, 15 minutes a day over like, my first one was seven days long. 
and it was it had actually started seven days prior to my wedding anniversary, which was last August, August 20th. So a lot of emotion. This was like three months after Vicky died. So I'm going through this grief cleanse and I'm asking the question, you say grief, what do you want to say to me today? You know, and you sort of prepare yourself and then you just let grief talk to you. So this inner dialogue, and this, this is the self-awareness piece, which I think is so huge, right? We have to stop and in stillness and be quiet and let these things come, right? So six days was just loaded with garbage. Garbage as in feelings and history and unresolved things in our marriage. And <clears throat> I mean, there was just a lot of stuff that surprised me. Day seven, our anniversary day, was complete amazing celebration hmm. and that was enough for that for then i go back to the grief cleanse now every about once a month i do a one dayer because you you know does it re definitely there's this recurring these recurring feelings i was doing really well after january and then i kind of hit the skids in about march and now i'm sort of feeling like i've done a lot more processing again so it's a roller coaster ride and i think that was definitely true back during the motorcycle accident. You know, I had 10 surgeries. So every time I'm, you know, preparing for another surgery, I'd like, not surgery again. I had, I called it surgery fatigue. I was so sick and tired of taking the taxi into New Westminster and going in for another surgery and then coming back and having to start over with my rehab that I had a lot of emotion. I mean, talk about a little bit of violence. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And I, I, I did see the destination that was for a purpose and all that, but I got pretty sick of going into those painful places again and again and again. And I'd say that it's not ever really easy, but I had some, because I had the tools and I figured out some ways, then at least it gave me hope that there was a way through it. Just before we go to the next part of talking about kind of relational conflict and how we make peace with others, um, and not not wanting you to pick someone in particular necessarily, but what do you think you've noticed in people that have gone through things that are similar that aren't as resilient maybe as you've been? Um, have you noticed that like there's a, a fate for folks that don't make peace? with some of the things that have robbed them or where they've felt loss that um, is a warning? Yeah, that, that is, brings, brings some concern when I run into somebody that's had a significant loss and they're in this cycle of victimhood and feeling sorry for themselves and they, they're stuck and they can't seem to move, move by it or move out of it. And I, I guess I say to myself, well, one thing I say to myself is, self, please do whatever you <clears throat> need to do so that doesn't happen to you. Because what I recognize is the people that have thrived and have, I, I use the term bounce forward as my definition of resiliency, not bounce back work sometimes if you have a back to go to. Mm. So I'm talking about how do you bounce forward and to me, if you don't learn to bounce forward, then you're going to be stuck in that, maybe that history that you can't quite get away from. And then life doesn't open up for you. 
possibilities doesn't op- open up for you. And it's an interesting study that I just read recently was that 15% of people that have had a major loss, they stay stuck in this chronic type grief where they it's just a cycle of sadness and difficulty. And they say one of the main reasons why they stay stuck is they actually can't let go of, of the past. They can't sort of close the chapter on that. And one thing that I feel quite good about, good about is maybe the right, not the right way to say it, but one thing I feel like I've been able to do is let go of the life I had with Vicky. Hmm. And I say that's also true with one of some of the things I lost through the accident. I have let go of running. Now that's, I don't put them in the same category, but now I cycle. I'm, I love cycling. That's my new running. With Vicky, I realize, you know, I'll go cycling now. We used to ride a tandem bike everywhere. I'll go out cycling on my single bike and I will remember the times we had, but I won't feel sad. Mm. And I think that's the point that people have to get to. And that's not where it started, but because I was looking, living forward instead of living backwards, then I got to that place. And I think it's a place of freedom. It's a place where you can build new relationships and and find new beginnings and, and all that. So Cam, you've kind of been talking about this idea of, of responding to trauma and grief um, based on things that are in you, things that are bubbling up, feelings that you're having. What about when those feelings or, or all of the anger and the, the negative things that we feel are sourced from a person with a face that's in front of us or maybe somewhere far away but there's a person attached to it. I'm wondering how some of these muscles or methods that you've developed in dealing with, um, I guess, personal pain and, and the pain of losing Vicky, how might those or how have those translated to being util- utilized when you're dealing with uh, another human who has maybe caused harm or conflict or anger within you? Is that transferable at all? Or what would you say to that? Definitely some thoughts come to mind for that. And one thought goes back to our motorcycle accident, which was caused by a distracted driver. We were going down the highway and he pulled, he came from a side road, didn't even stop. I don't think he even looked is what he told somebody. Turned right in front of us and then we slammed into him. So I had to sort of get my head around that. Now, I think my mindset and the way that I thought of those that hurt me prior to that helped. (laughs) Like I'm not one to hold on to grudges. So I think that probably helped, but I had to work that through because here was a gentleman that totally messed up my life permanently. (laughs) And so, and I did go to therapy for a year, some trauma counseling. I mean, that was a big part of my recovery and, and I think, it, it, oh, I know it was extremely helpful. And we talked about this. How do you, do I try to reach out to this, this man and interact with him? And we decided not to pursue that. But I certainly remember thinking, if I don't forgive him, then it's only going to hurt myself. And so it was a process. I don't exactly remember the details of how I actually did that, but Definitely, I leaned on some of the, the um, even the belief system. I think every, a lot of things that relate to this have to do with what's your mindset? 
What's your belief system? How does it dictate your actions? Even things like God allows things to happen in this world. If you believe that everything should go well for you, you're in a, you're in a heap of trouble because the world is broken. And so we're going to run into these places where it's broken, the accidents, the illness, everybody dies. I mean, if that surprises you, then what planet are you living on? So I think it's reframing even the fact that this fellow ran the stop sign. Am I going to blame him for hurting me because he ran the stop sign? It was a mistake, but I guess I decided not to um, put all my eggs into that basket. And I said, you know what, for my own sake, I need to pray for him. I need to release him from whatever harm I wish would come to him. So I don't know if that kind of helps with that, but that's some thoughts that that I have. Yeah, I think that uh, is a great example. And like, I'm I'm wondering if we look for some transferable principles there, as and when we when we talk about smaller uh, scale conflict, like um, say uh, between you and a friend, or you and like uh, someone with their spouse, or someone with a child. Uh, or whoever, uh, your boss, um, are there things that, like, I heard you talking about, like, say, when you're dealing with some of the violent attitudes internally, uh, just on your own, that you're, you make it a practice to listen to what grief would say to you. And I just wonder, like, like the role listening plays, for example, when we're trying to come to peacemaking with someone that we feel just makes no sense to us or doesn't see it our way. Are there other transferable principles that, that come to mind? For sure. I, I do think of my relationship with my daughter. I'm not going to get into specifics because it's our story to tell. But I, when we have conflict, which is periodically, you know, we do have conflict. We live in the same house and she has some ideas and I have some different ones. And what I try to do with her is I try to make sure that she if she's emotional, and it's the same for me too, like if I'm hyper emotional, like in the reptilian part of my brain, <laughs> to be specific, this fight or flight kind of reaction, that my goal is always to just, let's, let's uh, dial back this emotion somehow. And what's my role in that? How do I not react to her? Because I do that. And then I realize, well, that didn't work because we're we're up here somewhere. It's, it's too, it's too dialed up. So it's what I'm trying to do. And I, when I work with leaders and with different people that are in conflict as well, it's, it's try to help people to, to, uh, help diminish the emotion so that we can have better understanding. What did you mean by that? Understanding each other's interests and what was, what's your need in changing those curtains? <laughs> Just hypothetical situation. <laughs> um, what do you, why do you feel that's important? Instead of saying, no, we're not doing that. Well, how helpful is that in terms of resolving the, the, the conflict or the disagreement, I guess? I almost wonder if part of peacemaking is uh, self-awareness of kind of where emotionally you enter the conversation at, like where on the spectrum of emotion you are. And is it fair to say that uh, peacemaking could be... Um, disciplining yourself to have conversations at the right time? Absolutely. Timing is so important because there are, there's certainly the wrong time for those conversations. And, and also 
making sure the people that have withdrawals in their emotional love bank or whatever bank you want to call it, it's even more difficult to get to a place of common ground when you're having conflict. So I think it's when times are good, invest in that relationship. Now, you can't always do that. But I'd say, you know, live with change in your pocket so that when conflict happens and you need peacemaking, you, you have a little bit of cred that you can kind of fall back on, right? So I'm loving hearing you speak about all these kind of peaceful ways of managing and addressing conflict. Um, but I'm just wondering, is there ever, is, would it ever be like a thumbs up for there to be a, a violent reaction? Maybe it's about... Maybe it's about curtains or no, I'm just kidding. Maybe it's about um, some injustice in the world or serious harm being done to innocent people. Um, I just think about that story that we read out in the Gospels um, that's depicting Jesus flipping tables in, in outside the temple um, because of the injustice that was happening outside. And I'm just wondering, what, like, what, how do you wrestle with that story or, or what do you think about that? I just read in the last couple of days some, something from the Stoic philosophers, and I think it was Marcus Aurelius, talked about when is anger appropriate. And he really taught, and it's very similar to, to the biblical theology and understanding where anger is not a useful emotion most of the time. But he was saying in there, and, it's, and I think it's similar to Jesus turning the tables, when the anger is very deliberate and well thought through and not from a place of reaction for a certain purpose, then it can be very helpful. And I think that's what Jesus did. His anger was very targeted, very deliberate. He wasn't out of control. And it was for a certain purpose. He was trying to get a message across, but he wasn't like flaming red out of control. And I think there's something there. And I don't exactly know how I would always apply that. But I think if you, inside of your heart, have a peaceful center and you recognize that maybe to, I need to react a little more strongly here to get that person's attention, they are not listening. And I think that can be actually helpful. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Just thinking like uh, being passive doesn't quite communicate how much something affects you or how important something is, which I think that 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 really speaks to. So thank you for that. So Cam, um, when you talk about sort of purposeful anger, it it brings me back to the guest we had on a couple weeks ago who was talking about restorative justice and seeing um, brokenness in systems within our culture that when we become aware of how people become sort of um, invisible victims to people in power positions, that there can be moments of real frustration at best and um, downright anger, violent anger, maybe at worst, or m- maybe sometimes that's that's what um, it calls for. Um, I'm wondering if we can talk for a minute about some of the lessons from what you've dealt with personally, because it's been with such heightened emotion. How has that uh change the way that you view others that are struggling with different kinds of pain and loss, whether it's uh, something similar to yours, or maybe if we could just to, to point ourselves a bit at some of the systemic injustice that we see where people are 
victims of a system that ignores them or doesn't pay attention to them? Yeah, that's, that is a challenging question for sure. I think about some of the people that I've worked with, done workshops with people, for example, with brain injury and just other kinds of traumatized people, which I'm in those situations sometimes. And I think about some of the ways that they're finding advocacy with those in power positions. And I remember doing a workshop on advocacy one time. It's just, it's a flashback. And just talking about how those that are, have been victimized and don't have a lot of power, they need those people who will advocate for them. And that's where I love some of these organizations that they have a little more credibility. They have a little more power, so to speak. And it's really on us that maybe have, that are in positions of influence to come alongside of those people. I think the challenge for the person who is in that, who is victimized and feels very weak is for them to believe in themselves that they have value. I think that's definitely at the core of it, that you are worth putting some you know, effort on. You're worth having people believe in you and advocate for you. And I think they need to make those requests sometimes is what I was noticing. But they also need the people that will go to bat for them and with them. So maybe it's kind of a tag team approach that I don't think on their own they often have enough strength. But if they stay the victim, they're not always heard. So, but they need people who have empathy that will believe in them. And I think that's where we can pair up and partner up. And I think that's where the church comes in and those of us in leadership and in positions in communities where we, it's up to us to partner with those that need us and we can do this together. So that's, that's what comes to mind. Yeah, I appreciate that. And like, just to sort of summarize, we've been talking about personal peacemaking where we're at work with violent attitudes within us and then a bit about how in relationships sometimes there can be um, disagreement or fights or whatever where a peacemaking is aimed at another individual or individuals and then this idea of peacemaking in the systemic kind of scope where um, as someone that's empathetic toward people that are victims of things that are outside of their control sometimes sometimes we need to advocate i i think just to wrap us up like a question that i'm wondering about is how can we call all three of those things the same thing you know how like what do you think the common link is between what goes on inside of us what goes on when we're interacting with others what goes on when we're looking at the world around us and feeling these these draw this draw inside of us to do something about something that's wrong like is have we made a mistake to call all of this aspects of peacemaking or what do you think the common link is peace cannot always be made that's definitely true and i i'm just doing right now i'm we're doing a training with some transitional pastors, interim pastors, and we're, we have a session coming up in one of our next modules on peacemaking. We, we're using this diagram. It's, a, it's really a framework for peacemaking. It's called the slippery slope. You can Google it. And, and it actually talks about, it's a whole range of reactions that people have when there's conflict and relationship breakdown. And sort of to answer your question, we cannot 
you cannot see breakdown, relationship breakdown, as it's not all the same. And so depending on what's needed, what's required, the way people are reacting, then you have to approach it differently, which is all, that makes assessing the situation so important. One size, one approach does not fit everything. In some cases, they need arbitration. Other cases, they need mediation. Other cases, run, leave it alone. It's volatile. You're not going to fix that. So I think you're right. I don't think there's, it's not an easy, there's not an easy answer. It's not one size fits all. It's, we need to be equipped to be, to be able to see the, the range of responses. And I, myself, we talk about actually these five levels of conflict. The bottom one is we have a problem to solve. Well, all of us can, can enter into that level. Level five is called intractable. Call the police. So don't go near it as an amateur. Get the experts in and everywhere in between, right? So that's where it's really important for us to understand even the type of trauma that a person's had. Like, I'll be quick to say that, that um, you know, you go back to my, my first trauma, 12 months of therapy. Now, I haven't had any therapy yet. <laughs> that may still be coming, but every situation's different. The person's different. They're, they have different skills, different readiness. And so we just need to help each other grow and, and grow on the inside so that we can meet our challenges on the outside. Kind of sounds like a, something that takes a lot of creativity because not only are you dealing with the dynamic feelings in yourself, you're, or you're either dealing with the dynamic feelings of someone else and unique attributes of them or the situation you're in. So I think what I'm taking away is, is that it's not a one size fits all, but there's potential like for, for a lot of things to happen in all this kind of talk of peacemaking. And yeah, for sure. All that. Yeah. So true. Well, I want to thank you, Cam, for not only agreeing to do this and trusting us uh, in the kinds of questions we would ask you. We know that that takes trust. And um, also your willingness to open up very personal and private um, matters and maybe invite us or model to us that um, talking about them, keeping them from being too private is part of the pathway forward. And I sure appreciate how you consistently do that. And so we just profoundly are grateful for you and for your willingness to be part of this today. So thanks for being Well, thanks. Here. It's been an honor and you've made this easy. So thanks so much. Great. Next, we'll read a comparison of the world's peace versus a more biblically founded peace brought to us by David Hill. David Hill has been attending New Heights Church for about two and a half years. Because of respiratory difficulties, David does not have a loud verbal voice, which is why we will be reading out something that he wrote called Godly Peace versus Worldly Peace. David writes, There are differences in the way we talk about peace. I have noticed a few things that contrast godly peace versus the world's peace. Godly peace. God's peace is based on trust, a guarantee, 
promises foretold ahead of time when Jesus was on the earth. It's based on Jesus and he returning to bring about peace in the world. Godly peace does not necessarily have to be seen or be visible. This type of peace may allow for troubles. Godly peace doesn't need to manage situations. This peace is assuring and believes that God is always in control. God's peace always endures. Worldly peace. This is the type of peace that must be seen and depends on feelings or emotions. It does not allow for troubles. It's a peace where situations must be managed. A peace that tries to control things. This promise of peace is conditional. And in the end, it ultimately fails. Thank you for listening and a special thanks to Cam Taylor for his time and vulnerability. Thank you also to David Hill for his willingness to write a piece that we could read. Thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community. Join us again in two weeks when the re-podcast dives into the topic of sexuality. This has been episode 14 of the re-podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before.